You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'd heard that during eventless flying time, pilots sometimes plugged in their iPods and rocked out in the stratosphere. Disney was unable to confirm or deny such stories, but he did speak of the routine of flying in terms that I would hear several times more in the course of my stay on the carrier. You're flying a video game, he said. You're a weapons and sensor operator more than you're a pilot. The plane's easy to fly, flies itself almost. And then, with no change at all in his low, slow drawl, he began to talk about a different order of experience. You're flying at night, on a gorgeous clear night. At 30,000 feet, with the night vision goggles on, it's like flying through space. You see stars that you never thought you'd see before, especially if you're over water. That's like flying in deep space. So there it was still intact despite the technological advances and laconic delivery, the lyricism of night flight, as first and famously evoked by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. It was as if he had revealed something intimate to me, the experience that was at the core of his being, a realm of poetry accessible only to those whose worldview is based on technology, knowledge and calculation rather than wide-eyed wonder. Something similar had happened a couple of nights earlier when I'd been sitting with the captain and his pals as they smoked their cigars. Amid the talk of service and the fun of flying, the captain had suddenly spoken of how, quote, with no light pollution, on a night when there's no haze, you can see the majesty of the Milky Way. And Disney, the kid who'd excelled at video games, for whom it all came down to hand-eye coordination on keeping an eye on the dials and switches and the data. He too was having the transcendent experience craved by mystics, shamans, seekers, and acid heads. Jeff Dyer is the author of four novels, Paris Trance, The Search, The Color of Memory, and Jeff in Venice, Death in Varnasi. Two collections of essays, Anglo-English Attitudes and Working the Room, and But Beautiful, The Missing of the Psalm, Out of Sheer Rage, Yoga for People Who Can't Be Bothered to Do It, The Ongoing Moment, and Zona, which is about Andrei Tarkovsky's film Stalker. His new book is Another Great Day at Sea, Life Aboard the USS George H.W. Bush. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. Uh, thank you. It's a great pleasure. What brought you to get yourself installed as the writer-in-residence aboard an American aircraft carrier. Yeah, it was, uh, the attraction of it was precisely that it was so unusual. I'll just give you a little bit of background. This guy called Alan de Botton, quite well-known writer and philosopher, he spent a week as writer-in-residence at Heathrow and wrote a little book about his experience, which he found so enjoyable, he thought he uh, thought he had the idea of setting up a foundation called Writers in Residence, the idea of which was to put writers in residence in unusual places. And so he called me and asked if there were anywhere unusual that I would like to go and, and reside and then write a book about the experience. And I thought, I said, yeah, of course, you know, I'd, I'd love to do, to do that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always up for a free trip, really. And um, I started to think about where I might go, and it seemed to me quickly quite foolish to go anywhere that I might end up in the course of my normal life. The more inaccessible and closed the world that I might find myself in, the better. And the bit of further thought meant and I'd been fascinated by the military for a while, so with no real hope of it happening, I got back in touch with him and said, well, if there's any chance of getting on board an American aircraft carrier, that would be that would be great. And, you know, when you do those things, they're like competitions or something, and they say, remember, your first choice might not be available. And time passed, and sort of six months later, he said, yep, yeah, okay, it's all sorted out. When do you want to go? Wow. You know, you said you didn't want to go to any place that you normally travel, but that idea of 
traveling really, I think, uh, informs your vision in this book, in that the way you experience your time on board the ship is you can't help but make all these comparisons to what it would be like to be on a tourist ship. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it compared, let's say, with some of these uh, books that have come out recently in the last several years about, uh, you know, reporters who were embodied with the infantry in Iraq or Afghanistan, something like that. You know, I, I have to hold my hands up to it and say, yeah, this was this was pretty much just like uh, going on holiday for two weeks. Uh, it was only two weeks, and it was it was relatively it was relatively comfortable. Yeah, it was a it is a form of travel writing in a way, and there's a long tradition of travel writing, of course, whereby somebody from whatever background finds themselves in a world that's completely alien to their own. So yeah, it's it's in that kind of uh, that kind of trajectory or tradition, I think. It's my uh, intuition that, say, eighty years from now, if we have uh, a better form of space travel that this will be the book they make everybody read before getting on board a ship that's in space because the similarities are so many well i hope you're wrong about that in a way in in your time scale i hope 80 years from now i'm going to be dead and gone but you know I, I, in a sense i feel this book is my calling card to be one of the first journalists in space so yeah, I hope it's not. I, I hope this kind. Of, yeah, I, I'm rather more concerned about the immediate future and getting a, a free trip in, in in space. Well, yeah, I think you're the perfect guy to send up to the ISS or the shattered remains. Of <laughs> yes, the gravity ravaged uh, remains of the the space station. But well, well, thank you. I, I, if it serves as some kind of um, uh, exemplar, then of course I'm I'm very happy. Well, I, I think. The, the similarities of the worlds, it's you're in a place that's metal, you set foot off of it, chances are you're dead. Mm -hmm. uh, you're surrounded, it's a military infrastructure. When you first got on the ship, you, you create yourself as a character, and it's a character who is not really the best person to be on that ship. Uh, yeah, that's so true. I think one of the there was this very obvious contrast, really. I mean, I'm this writer. I'm not subject to anyone else's discipline. I spend 365 days a year doing pretty much what I want. Uh, if I've got a form of, if there's any self-discipline in my life, it's pretty much indistinguishable from uh, a radical kind of self-indulgence. Then I come onto this, uh, and I'm used to, you know, spending my days pretty much on my own. That I'm in this environment where basically the last exercise of free will that people had was signing up to join, after which their lives comprise uh, are comprised entirely of doing what they're told. They're spending their not just their you know one not just the hours of nine to five, but seven months solid, in the company of other people. So yeah, it's a it, you couldn't get a more. Uh, uh, it, it's it's a very dramatic collision between two way two ways of living. Well, physically too, you asked for and and made a fuss about having your own room, and I've actually been on uh, here in San Francisco. We have a ship called the Pompanito, mm -hmm. and as a Cub Scout master, we took the Cub Scout troops there to spend a night, and they tried to make me sleep in one of those bunks. It was like being locked in a coffin. <laughs> Yeah, so I really made a big fuss about wanting my own room. I mean, I wanted my own room for, you know, entirely selfish reasons, because I'm not used to sharing, and it just seemed... Uh, I, mean, I, I hated the idea of sharing with five other people. I wouldn't have minded being in a big dorm of 200 so much. But also, I knew it was going to be a quite intense time, only on the boat for two weeks. I was going to be seeing a lot of stuff. And I really wanted to make sure I could have a place to retreat to, where I could be working, you know, typing up my notes and all this kind of stuff. That proved to be a really good decision on my part because I was seeing so much each day. I mean, what would happen is that, you know, I'd have one quite amazing experience and it would be instantly overlain by another. So it was really good to I'd get back to my room and as I shut the door, I'd sort of collapse onto the onto the door and think, thank God, I've got time on my own now. Um, and then I'd quickly be writing up what had happened before I had to, you know, go out and see some more stuff. 
the environment that you went into is to us, even if you've seen these movies and seen all this stuff, the way you render it in prose, it's very intense and human hostile. It's like trying to fit yourself in between the moving pistons of an internal combustion engine. Yes, that's right. It's not, um, yeah, uh, the comfort of the crew is not uppermost in the designer's mind, uh, I think. Um, but then that's, uh, that would be true of any, uh, you know, any aspect of, of the military. It's the efficient functioning of the vessel. Um, that 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 is important. Uh, you're right to stress it's the intensity of the environment, and it's intense for a quite obvious reason. I mean, there's it's a place where work where people are working incredibly hard. The carrier is huge; it's vast. What I hadn't realized, and I was expecting that, of course. What I hadn't realized is that it would be so crowded. It's a huge place that's very very densely populated with with people and machinery. Wow, now that's kind of interesting because when you see the pictures of it, you see the big flat areas. It's an airport at sea, and then you've got and you've got to realize, well, gosh, airports have a, a lot of people in them. Uh, yeah, so the flight deck is is very very big, and it's pretty empty. Of uh, you know, the only people who are up on the flight deck are the people who have to be up there because it's it's an inherently dangerous environment. Um, it's uh, there are quite a lot of planes up there at any one time, although they try to get them down into the hangar deck as quickly as possible. But if you bear in mind, you know there are about seventy planes on this ship, then you get a sense of you know how valuable the space is, because there's there are the planes, there's everything that's needed to repair and maintain them, and then there's the small matter of there being five thousand people on the ship. That's a lot of people for such a small space. So that's the, not exactly the paradox, but that's the conundrum, really, whopping great place that's incredibly crowded. You know, and one of the things I think that's so interesting about this book is the way you take us from all the the little, the very small places that have these huge jobs. I mean, mm. every you're, you're being some kind of like really confined space that even as a reader you feel claustrophobic, but the people will be talking about, uh, there's a chef who has to, you know, feed these 5,000 people a day. That's 15,000 meals a day. Yeah, uh, that's right. The scale of the operation is is extraordinary, and I particularly like that guy. I can't remember his name now, the sort of head catering guy, because he had this nice thing which you also, I associate with American waiters doing, you know, when they tell you about the day specials. He sort of says, yeah, I have today a, you know, a lamb casserole and with a port wine reduction or whatever. And in the same way, this guy would say, yeah, I aim to eat my way through, you know, all of this kind of stuff. So it was as though... He'd really personalized the eating habits of the entire carrier. And, and you yourself, however, did not find the food. You found it on the edge of palatability and probably grew as a thin fellow, got a, even a thinner. Yeah, I'm a, but it's, it's my problem. I'm a fussy eater. You know, I grew up uh, hating all the food my parents cooked. And, you know, we get into that thing when I was a kid of that thing. You know, you're not leaving the table till you till you eat it and so I just I just sit it out because I, I so anyway I I've always been a fussy eater that's why I'm so skinny I reckon and it was um it was really so I mean one of the guys said to me one of the guys running the gym there he said you know a lot of people on this boat they eat better on the on the boat than they do when they're back home it was very very you know it was kind of a lot of fried food a lot of meat a lot of sort of hamburgers this kind of stuff and there was a salad option but it wasn't the kind of salads that you get here in San Francisco not surprisingly because they didn't have a farmers market just down the road uh, i did hear people say that you know the the food in some ways was worse than it used to be because it was much more of it was pre-prepared less of it was made from scratch but you know, I mean, I, there was a ta- I was in a taxi, and just to give you a bit of context, and I really want to sort of emphasize this is my problem. There was a taxi driver in Portland a couple of nights ago. He'd been in the Marines at Pendleton, and he said when they got, uh, they were on a carrier for a while, and he said, we, when we got on the carrier, we were in hog heaven. The food was so much better. You know, so I had it. And actually, he said, he said there's one time in the canteen or whatever it's called at, at Pendleton, some guy was running his mouth off about not liking the food or so the food was bad. 
And apparently the, the, the gunny sergeant, whatever you call him here, grabbed this guy's head, shoved his head into the mashed potatoes and started beating him around the head with the spoon that's used to serve. So, I mean, yeah, so I should have been grateful for the quality of the food and for the fact that only the potatoes, not my head, was getting mashed. Your head getting mashed is actually a, a constant danger. Every part of your body is about to be attacked by pretty much every part of the aircraft carrier. Yeah, it's. I was um, for a long time. I thought I was the tallest person on the on the carrier, and uh, there was one guy taller than me. This African American guy who'd spent a lot of time on the carrier, and he'd sort of undergone this sort of one this one person form, highly individualized form of accelerated evolution. He'd sort of found this way of kind of shrinking his neck back into his body, it, it, it seemed. And, you know, I, he said, yeah, it's better to do that than to be gashing your head open the whole time. But I saw he had lots of scars on his head. So if you're tall, an aircraft carrier is not the best place for you. Neither, though, is it the worst. Of course, conditions are a lot more cramped on a submarine. There's so much to do to make this thing work. There are so many moving pieces, and they're loud, and the people who have to work them uh, have to adopt a form of dress that is really peculiar. And you do a great job of describing these guys who look like something out of a, a video game set in what you might call an ancient future. Yeah, that's right. One of the striking things throughout was this uh, constant this constant encounter between, on the one hand, the technology, which is state-of-the-art, this NASA-style, you know, uh, it's one of the most technologically advanced places on Earth, okay, so there'd be that. But there'd be this constant interaction with that and the sort of, and and the humans who were often having to do very, very basic, hard, kind of blue-collar type type work. And I remember when I first landed, when we first landed on the carrier, we saw these guys, and they were standing around, around in, uh, they had these, they're called cranials. It's like ear and eye, ear, eye, and head protection is what the cranial does. So that made them look rather science fiction, futuristic looking. But they were standing there with these huge, thick chains draped around their shoulders. And that gave them the look of, um, you know, people, I don't know, operating a medieval siege machine as they were trying to storm a castle. That was repeated over and over, actually. Yeah, it was very, very, very striking. You'd, we went for a ride on a helicopter, and we landed, and these same guys ran up to chain the helicopter down. Another guy came forward. His job was to, to squeegee the, wind, the windshield, you know, to clean it, just like when you stop at a red signal in a city and somebody dashes up and they want to... So there's this constant interaction between high-tech and very basic manual work. And again, you know, if you'd gone on to the carrier for a two-week vacation from your job in a, in a car plant in, in Detroit, say, it wouldn't have seemed so alien because you'd have been used to a, a, a noisy, clanging industrial environment, whereas, you know, I'm not used to that. It was really loud. It was loud. Every place was loud. You, have, you couldn't sleep. I mean, did you get any sleep in those two weeks? Yeah, I actually slept rather well. I mean, initially, I thought I wasn't going to get a wink of sleep because I, we arrived there in the middle of the day. My room was right beneath the flight deck. And so there'd be these sequences of planes taking off, which was incredibly loud, of course. You know, it's ear-splittingly loud. And there'd then be the sort of racketing aftershock of the uh, the catapult kind of, you know, um, sort of going back into place. That was pretty noisy, but it was as nothing compared with the noise of planes landing and being caught by the arresting wire. And I really thought, you know, it's going to be impossible to get a single wink of sleep here. But it turned out there's a a seven or eight hour period in the night when there are no flight operations. And then there's just the kind of constant clanking and whirring and thumping of of sort of machinery. But it's, it's like a kind of background noise. So actually, I slept perfectly well. One of the things you do really well in this book is in just a remarkably short piece of writing, create a series of really fascinating characters. I'd like you to talk about doing these compressed characterizations while you're in the midst of this, you know, clanging environment, meeting somebody, run up there, come back, run right again. Yeah, I met, uh, you know, a lot of of people, and it was really, 
it was great actually. So I met everybody from the kind of uh, the captain and the admiral who were of the fleet who was who was on the ship for a few days. Down through, <clears throat> I mean, obviously, I wanted to spend a lot of time with the pilots. That's they're the kind of glamour end of things on on, on the ship. And uh, you know, one of those pilots I I was chatting to, you know, she was flying solo F eighteen missions. So that's kind of that's cool and rather surprising. Woman in her, I think she was in her late late twenties at that point. And then you know, there's a lot of people involved in maintaining the aircraft. And then there's you know, if you think of every occupation that you might get in a an American town of 5,000 people, that occupation would be represented on the carrier. So it's, uh, you know, from cooks, there's a lot of administrative people who's, you know, sorting out the pay, all this kind of stuff, doctors, I mean, you you name it. But a lot of a lot of people involved in, in mechanics of, of one kind or another. Mechanics, maintenance, cleaning, yeah. Keeping the humans going is probably one of the more important parts of the... <laughs> of the position and you have some great interactions with the doctors and the dentists. <laughs> yeah, well I'm such a low life. I mean it was it was really remarkable on this car. I started to realize that wow, you know, everybody's got these sort of it's it's like I was in a movie because everybody had these perfect teeth. So I went down to see the dentist, uh, you know, and it was and then I thought because I've got these kind of terrible English teeth and I was starting to in my freeloading journalistic way, I thought, yeah, I, I at the very least, I should get 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 my teeth cleaned for free or something, and it was it was fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, there's all the. I mean, the the medical thing is is important because it's an industrial environment. So there are lots of accidents. You know, there aren't that many catastrophic accidents where somebody. It's an environment on the flight deck where you could easily, you know, find you've had your leg chopped off by something, but that's that's ex- extremely rare. But Accidents, the kind of accidents where you get your fingers really badly crushed by a piece of equipment or in one of the hatches, that's very, very common. And the other thing they have to be very vigilant about is dealing with, uh, you know, any kind of disease that gets on board, any kind of infectious disease is going to sweep through the the whole ship and is going to severely incapacitate the crew. There's one great example you you talk about where they... They managed to cut the in half by making them turn the spoons around. Oh, the Bahrain bug. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. there was some kind of uh, you know diarrhea outbreak. Fortunately, before I got on the on the boat, and you know that was really you know you know that 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 can always spread like wildfire. And one of the ways they they managed to, to sort of st- to staunch it, normally at, at the lunch places, uh, the crew serve themselves from these kind of uh, buffet type things. And they had this very simple solution. They turned the soup, the spoons around, and it was the the people who'd prepared the meals served everybody. So that that really uh, stopped the spread of the this of, of the Bahrain bug, as they called it, very very effectively. The Bahrain bug is a huge problem on that particular aircraft carrier. Maybe we presume others because the uh, the toilets don't work very well. That was a source of uh, some contention and dispute, although. I mean, it, it really, there was, there was this, I can't remember, it was a vacuum system, and it seemed these toilets were prone to clogging. And there was even something where one of the, I think the mother of one of the crew members went on Facebook and talked about this. And the captain, Brian Luther, delivered a very, very robust, uncompromising defense of his, of the ship's uh, lavatorial capabilities, pointing out that all of the blockages were caused by people um, putting inappropriate things down the, the toilet and blocking them. Uh, and I th- think the mother had heard that because the toilets were blocking, people were drinking less and therefore getting dehydrated. And therefore there was a rise in urinary tract infections. And the captain rather drolly and deadpanly pointed out that there was only a slight spike in urinary tract infections after the week, after the uh, the ship had had a, a, a week, a, a port of uh, stopped in, in, in shore somewhere for a week. And so obviously some members of the crew had been out kind of, they, they'd obviously picked something up in wherever they were. So yeah, he was he was very unflinching in, in his defense of the, uh, the ship's toilets. I, I love the way that you thread yourself as a character through this book. I think it's, all your books seem to be journeys to, to get to know Jeff. 
journey towards Jeff. <laughs> well, if I could offer a slight correction to that, thank you for the... Uh, I, I think you're, I would agree they're all journeys. They tend to be... I mean, let's, let's put it like this. The best essays are a form of... sort of They involve a kind of journey. Uh, often it's an epistemological journey, let's put it like that, from some sort of curiosity or ignorance towards knowledge. So my book about photography or my book about jazz or the book about the First World War, uh, yeah, that's, um, the book takes us on a, on a cognitive journey, not a literal one, whereby I come to an understanding. In the photography book, I don't feature at all as a, as a character, nor do I in the jazz book, but beautiful. Um, so yes, they're all journeys, but they're not all journeys about me. They tend to be journeys to and around the subject. This book, uh, one of the things, the the cover tells us something very important that in the title tells us something very important that you heard every single day talk about another great day at sea. Yes, sir. It was the there was a it was kind of one of the um, sort of ritualistic parts of the day. Every day, the captain would come on the the main circuit and uh, you know. Uh, address the crew, tell them what's going on, and he would always begin with saying, you know, it's been another great day at sea, and he did it in this way as to uh, make you believe, yeah, this this has been a particularly great day at sea, even though yesterday was a great day at sea as well, and the, the crew kind of regarded this with a kind of wry fondness, I guess, um, and there was one particular day, I remember it so well, he came on, and he, the weather was particularly lovely this day, and he said, oh, it's been, a, it's been another great day at sea, a striking day. I think we should just, you know, mail back our paychecks to the Navy for the privilege of being out at sea on a day like this. So it was a really, he had a, I mean, the, the vibe on the, the ship, as far as I could tell, was fantastic. And that was largely to do with the way that he had, uh, made it an environment in which uh, you know everyone irrespective of, of their of their job felt that they were playing a part so it was it managed to create a very very uh, good sort of communal feeling uh, which meant that he didn't have resort to the old-fashioned kind of captain Bly keel hall this man style of, of of discipline speaking of keel hall you did visit the brig which in a sense is the ultimate uh apotheosis of the aircraft carrier itself. Yeah, so, um, you know, when you're, every ship in, is in a sense a prison ship in that you've, you're imprisoned on it. You can't get, in, uh, even those, you know, I used to sometimes go to these, get invited to go to, you know, parties on boats on the Thames. And I never went on them because I just didn't like the idea of being stuck there for, you know, without any ability to leave. So, yeah, so the, any boat is a prison ship, and then within the, the boat you've got this, the prison, the brig, which is either for, it would either be for enemy uh, prisoners of war or for people who had, uh, you, know, uh, for, you know, gone through the various layers of the, of the, 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 the ship's disciplinary si system and it ended up, yeah, in the joint, as, the, uh, uh, as it would be called. And everywhere on the boat was incredibly busy, packed with people except for the brig they weren't doing any business at all because it was a you know pretty happy ship i think you have a, a you have a memorable discussion with the uh person who runs the brig and this is a great character it's so much fun to read this book just because the way you manage to interact with all these people yeah, I mean, so I was denying that I was a character in all of my books, uh, but certainly I, I am, you know, I have, uh, what should we say, more than a cameo role in this one. And, um, you know, I felt that, so there's a couple of people that I sort of disagree with. There was a, so I went to speak with the, the woman running the brig, and um, I asked her a question, and she, uh, I said, you know, I can't remember what it was exactly, but she replied something like, I'm not at liberty to discuss that with you, sir. And she'd described before then something about, you know, you could get into trouble if you repeatedly used a, a bad, a, you know, if you were using profanities, a bad word. And so I thought, you know, well, what the, you know, what the bad word am I speaking with you for if you're not going to tell, tell me this stuff? You know? um, when you're on a ship in an enclosed space with a lot of people, 
one of your senses is going to be responding constantly, which is your olfactory sense. Mm. And you managed to, for some reason, you were able to call your minder to you. <laughs> no, we don't know. One of the luxuries of I felt of having my own room was the freedom to, to break wind whenever I wanted to. But it seemed that in some sort of weirdly telepathic way, as soon as I did this, the guy who was uh, escorting me, me and the photographer, ran the, the carrier. Seconds later, he'd knock on my door. <laughs> I should say as well, let me make this clear, he was showing me around the, showing us around the carrier all that he was with us all the time, not to censor or monitor us, but really to stop us having accidents and, crucially, to stop us getting lost because it was an incredibly... Uh, you know, everywhere looked the same. It was huge with loads of different levels and it was it would it would be I don't know how long you'd need to be on the ship before you could find your own way around, but certainly I'd probably still be on that ship now if, if it wasn't for him trying to find the exit door. You, you know, that's something that's interesting because you convey that sensibility without ever uh, saying it that way. I mean, uh, my thought was out when you were saying that. I don't want to go anywhere on that ship without somebody telling me where I am and keeping me from walking into some horrifically dangerous environment, in particular the places where the plans are la planes are landing and taking off. Yeah, um, so your movement, so people are not allowed up on the flight deck unless they're, they're doing something really uh, essential because that's incredibly uh, dangerous, not just because there's, there's loads of stuff to trip over, but, you know, you've got planes coming in to land and, you know, what, what happens is they come into land rather, rather slowly. Uh, but then at the last moment, in case they miss the arresting wire, they accelerate to full power again. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. So when the, when the hook of the plane catches the arresting wire, the plane is at, uh, in a state of maximum determination not to be arrested. It's, you know, it's geared to, to take off again. So the forces that are at work, that are meeting each other, are really, really quite incredible. Um, and yeah, there's all sorts of accidents that, that can, can happen. So your, 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 um, where you can step and go on the flight deck, you're, you're very carefully chaperoned. The technology that's at play in these planes and in these launches and in the landings is really incredible. And you do a great job of conveying just the scale of this stuff and the, and the intensity of it. Yeah, and it's uh, the intensity of it is even more remark uh, more noticeable at night because then when the planes are taking off, when they're being catapulted off and there's the behind the plane to give them extra sort of thrust, as it were, this bla the blast deflector shield comes up. And you see this kind of roar of, uh, of you know, solid core of flame emerging from the back of the, of, of the plane just before it takes off. So it's really, I mean, to use this word the kids overuse, it's really awesome. You talked a little bit about the pilots. Tell us about Disney and, and getting to, to know this pilot, because these characters are really interesting. Yeah, uh, that's right. So I wanted to meet the, the pilots, and there was one particular one who just in the, something I overheard him saying, he was talking about two-seater planes because he flew solo most of the time. And he said something like, a two-seater plane is a plane with a pilot and a piece of self-loading baggage. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I want to speak more to this guy. And actually when I met up with him again, he was rather more... Uh, you know, respectful about the uh, <clears throat> the navigator or whatever the other the other person is, but you know the the pilots famously have this you know a sort of swagger and Top Gun kind of uh, cockiness about them, but um, you know the there's a kind of there's a swaggering quality to lots of what goes on in in the flight deck, or perhaps not swaggering, but there's a very overt physicality to it because the um, you know, the procedure of launching and recovery, recovering planes, there's a lot of communication going on that is entirely visual. Of course, there's radio as well. But there's this quite literal form of uh, ballet that's going on as the people on the flight deck are gesturing and communicating to each other in their different co color-coordinated outfits. And it's something that everybody is struck by, this kind of, you know, this ongoing very very functional yeah it's a kind of ballet that's going on and it's really really beautiful uh, to watch and observe 
you got to dine with the captain and, and in a couple of different levels of oh, yeah. of luxury. So talk about the ascending levels of luxury such as it exists on an aircraft carrier. Yeah, that's right. So the uh, you know, the food predictably enough gets better as you move up the kind of totem pole. So uh there's the food is better in the sort of officers eating area than it is for the uh, sort of enlisted ranks or whatever they're whatever they're called. And then finally, I interviewed the the captain's cook, and uh, I was chatting with her, and you know, and, and she offered to make me some, you know, some. She said oh, I could make you make you some of the, you know, I could heat up some of the leftovers from tonight. And it was amazing. It was just gorgeous, high quality food, which the captain and a few of his guests get to eat every night and I think for a couple of nights after that I started living like a stowaway in that the captain's cook would uh, would you know she she'd heat up some food for me and then on my very last night I had the great good fortune to actually dine with the captain and his guests in his in his quarters and the food was amazing and it was yeah it was it was it was great but what what's it was it was properly sociable. The captain was a was a wonderful guy. He was great company. Uh, of course, no wine was served, and it was incredibly quick as well. It wasn't at all like these sort of dinner parties you go to that just roll on and on. You know, it was sort of forty five minutes, and we we were done. <laughs> now you got to meet the admiral too, a woman, and you got you got a good vibe from her, and but you have a great conversation about her after. Yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah, Nora. So the the admiral of the fleet came on board, and you know the person who outranked everybody on the ship was was this woman in her, I guess, late forties, maybe early fifties, who had this very very powerful job, uh, and you know uh, I think she was. I, I hope I'm right in saying she's she's from Kentucky. So and she had this very very. It's just great manner, really. You know, not at all what you would expect with a with a military person. It was almost a kind of down home manner. And the other surprising thing is that she wasn't somebody who had, uh, you know, given the obstacles that have been historically in the path of women, you know, advancing to positions of great power. It's, you know, it's not like this was her ambition from the get go. She was an English major, so we'd have these. She always wanted. She was always wanting to talk about writing, you know. And she said, she said, you know. So that was yeah. We just talked talked about literature. She was. I was wanting. I was wanting to talk to her about her job, and she was wanting to talk to me about mine. <laughs> uh, speaking of women, you make the point in this book that women comprise about a fifth uh, of the population of the ship, and that it's not a big deal. It, it seems to be working really well. Yeah, it's one of the little things I say that, you know, I'm struck by how, how so many of the world's small problems, and actually I reckon by extension a lot of the world's big problems, for example the Taliban, you know, <laughs> how, how those problems are solved by just having, just by having women around. And when I, whenever I see those sort of, the, the footage of the of Taliban and those sort of evenings, all those blokes together, I think, oh, what a, what a, what a, what a crazy, what a, what a kind of, <clears throat> What a strange way to organize your, your life. The idea that the women are just there in the kitchen. It would be much more fun. You know, just hanging out with all your male friends is just uh, it's just not so good. And yeah, uh, there was a long struggle to get women on board the carrier in the Navy, just as there was an even longer struggle, though, to get women admitted to my Oxford College. And the response when these things happened was the same in both places. You know, oh... How silly! Why didn't we do this 300 years ago? Um, and you know, I think it's somebody. You know, that it, it's just it really wasn't an issue. Although, you know, I was conscious beforehand of this. Uh, you know, this contentious thing of uh, sexual abuse in the military, and I'd seen that documentary. I can't remember what it's called now. About yeah, you know, just about that. Was it called the Hidden War? So yeah, this is a this is a a, a real problem. I wasn't on the ship. I wasn't. I, you know, nobody came to me with stories of of of, of sexual uh, abuse, and it seemed to me that probably because the carrier is so crowded, because people get so little privacy, I'd have thought that of all the places where there might be uh, sexual abuse, it seemed to me this is this is probably not, not where it's not where it's going on. I could be wrong, but you know 
that was that was certainly the impression I got. I mean, it seemed to me in every way, in terms of the intera interaction between uh, the sexes, in terms of its racial integration, it seemed incredibly harmonious. It's a it's a real small town, and small towns you don't have you don't mess with your other people in a small town, much less well, likely. Well, do you know, that's, I learned that to my cost when I was uh, on a residency in Marfa, Texas. It's a small town. And, you know, I managed to alienate the guy who had the ping-pong table in the town. So I wasn't able to play ping-pong after that. So, yes, I certainly, uh, you're certainly right. And it's one of the reasons why I think everybody behaved in a way that's incredibly courteous and polite. Because, you know, as we know, if you're tired and stressed out, being very, very courteous and polite is the way that requires the least exertion. And did you ever get a chance to play ping pong? I know it's important to you. Brought your ping pong. There's a lot of other ways to yeah. exercise on the ship. Do you know, I, I was sure there would be ping pong tables, and incredibly there weren't. And I'd have thought a ping pong table would be a good thing. It doesn't take up much, much time. But I greatly uh, overestimated the opportunities for leisure on the carrier, partly because it's, it's very, very crowded, but also because people's days are so busy, they don't get much downtime. You, you said it. It's incredible. These people work regularly, 16-hour to 18-hour days, come four hours sleep. These uh, people, oh my God. Yeah, and they're all working incredibly hard. So, yeah, it's... Um, and then quite often at the end of a, of, a, of a shift, which I don't know how long it would be, then people are studying, uh, often with a, a sort of... to get some sort of vocational qualification which will enable them to move up to a, you know, a different rank, a better job, this kind of thing. Talk about the steel beach and becoming beach belly. Oh yeah, so beat is it? Yeah, the beat. So there was the um, there was this one great day when flight operations were suspended, and it was a kind of holiday day. So there was a kind of barbecue on the flight deck. Uh, no drink, no alcohol was served, of course, but there were DJs, and it was just a great holiday day. And the captain and the admiral, they were there in their in t-shirts and shorts. It was just wonderful. It was fantastic. And that was the day that, um, I th as the book goes on, it gets crazier. It becomes less and less a work of orthodox reportage and more of a kind of Jeff Dyer-type book. And I think it's after I started eating at the, the, the leftovers from the captain's place. You know, I talk about the way that my, my, uh, you know, my belly is sort of taut as a beach ball stuffed with food. Then there's a kind of funny bit where, you know, uh, it's a kind of sort of uh, passage where I talk about kind of losing it and going kind of stir-crazy and the book moves into the third person as I become this character, Beach Belly, <laughs> uh, a kind of, uh, yeah, somebody who's sort of losing their way in, 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 the, in the sort of the, the goings-on of, the, character, of the, the carrier. Now, these uh, carriers, it looks like those decks, I mean, are there, are there like guardrails? I, I, oh, no, there are, <clears throat> because... Um, uh, because the planes have to be able to uh, take off at the end and because there's a chance they might go skidding off the side, there are no guardrails, but beneath, just below the, uh, the, the deck, there are these kind of nets which can catch you if you, should you, should you fall over. It just seems, I, I get vertigo, so just the idea of such a thing just, just seems extremely terrorizing. Oh, uh, you know, I've, uh, my wife has terrible fear of heights, and I have absolutely none. So in that in that way that uh, it's in the nature of marriage, I love nothing more than to be uh, to be somewhere and to be I don't know like jumping across from one sort of uh, across a chasm just to sort of so yeah I was very happy on that beach on that steel, the day of the steel beach party as they call it to be looking over the edge of the the carrier like that. I, I want to talk a little bit about a book you wrote called Zona. Oh, <laughs> uh, which is about the uh, film by Andrei Tarkovsky uh, called Stalker. This is a wonderful book. It's a it's a wonderful, barely seen film, a and I think what interests me is that this is uh, a book about a film based on a book. <laughs> so I. Uh, it's kind of a, a hall of mirrors, and I think you do a really good job at. Um, exploring the world that Tarkovsky creates and exploring uh, the world that he created within you by creating this film. 
Yeah, that's right. So uh, what I, yeah. So this is a film that came out, I guess, in the early '80s, and I saw it when I was uh, just out of university in my early twenties, and it's one of those. That film was one of the formative films for me. It had a sort of great, great impact on me. I'd seen a lot of art films before then, but this film, I think, affected me more deeply than any other. And apart from those films that sort of turn up every Christmas on TV in England, like The Great Escape or something, it's the film that I've seen in theatres more than any other. And as you know, it's got this straightforward plot. It's alleged that there's this place there's this place called the zone which is cordoned off at the heart of which it's alleged there's a place called the room where your deepest wish will come true and that stalker stalker in the sense of guide rather than somebody who obsessively follows you know a celebrity um, he this stalker the guide he takes two people into the zone towards the room and that's what the film comprises but although it's a it depicts a literal journey through this incredible landscape, which on the one hand, this place, the zone, on the one hand, it's incredibly ordinary, and on the other, on the other hand, it does seem absolutely extraordinary because of the way it's filmed. So you, you, know, you, you believe in, in the magical powers that, uh, that Stalker says it has. So what I do is I just sort of summarize the film and um, talk about the way that some of the, the effects of the, the film are, are achieved. But then what happens in the film is that the literal journey they're taking through the landscape, this beautiful landscape, very lush and green, their progress becomes increasingly halting and they get distracted by increasingly sort of metaphysical or philosophical questions. Uh, and the same thing happens with the book. So uh, I end up sort of talking about the... Uh, you know the what the film mean, has meant to me in my life, and I I pick up on some of the some of the the big issues that the 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 film raises. And my goodness, it does raise some some big issues. You know, it's a it's about it's a religious it's a film about religion, and it's um it's a, yeah it's a, it's a, it's a religious film. I think there's some just amazingly striking yeah. images in it. Um, there's a one photograph, and you talk about this, the way Tarkovsky uses wind mm. in the movie. There's a photograph of the wind rippling through the grass that is etched in my memory that will never go away. And I think the, that those kind of images really do help. They are part and parcel, uh, uh, some kind of impossible to disconnect from the religious aspect of the movie. Yeah, that that's right. I think, it, I mean, yeah, you're, that, that sequence where out of nowhere this wind just starts rippling through the, gra through the grass and the, and the trees. And it's something, he does the same thing in, in an earlier film, Mirror. And that's one of those, there are many sequences in the film like that where, you know, the, the hairs stand up on the, on the back of your neck. I find so many sequences in the film so profoundly moving and it's one of the reasons I wrote the book because I found that you know I've seen this film so many times and certain sequences in it I was finding that you know the more times I saw them the more powerfully I was I, I, I was affected by them and there's all sorts of scenes which I, I can't see without tears coming to my eyes so they affect me you know it affects me profoundly this film and I think I should say I don't I, I think it's not just one of the greatest films ever made I think it's really one of the great artworks of any time, actually. So I think it's really, really profound. And then, I mean, I don't want to, to spoil uh, things uh, for, the, uh, for, for some people who haven't seen the film yet, but it said that stalkers, these people who guide people through the zone, that their children are born with birth defects. And we know that the, the stalker's kid can't walk. And then there's this incredible sequence at the end, towards the end, when he's come back from the zone, and it's a close-up of his daughter in profile, and it seems that she's walking. So if you like, a miracle has occurred. It's a film that's full of miracles. Now, it turns out this is a miracle in the sort of sense that Richard Dawkins could, uh, could accept. There's a straightforward physical explanation of why, she was, why she's able to walk, and it's revealed as the camera pulls back in this passage of such stunning visual beauty it's just incredible and then right at the end the final shot of the film which i won't disclose is this 
straightforward, old-fashioned idea of a miracle. It's so moving, and it's, 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 yeah. And what the film does throughout, it's just reminding you all the time, actually, of this, this miraculous thing that cinema can be, whereby the ordinary world is rendered in such a way with such sort of intensity as to render, as to make it, as to imbue it with all the magical qualities that Stalker says this place, the zone, has. So the zone is, along with everything else, it's a, you know, the zone is, is cinema. You know, the zone is about the wonder of cinematic space. I think, you know, the same thing you could say about this book. <laughs> I mean, no, think about it. This, you take us to a zone, a place we could never, most of us can never, ever go. It's dangerous, it's foreign, and in the, in the course of your journey through this and our journey through it, you change, and you change the, to this third-person <laughs> narrator. I mean, it's just not, it's, it's a, a similar experience, and I think that this gets to maybe a bit what, why you manage to make yourself sit in front of a computer and type. Well, that's very nice of you to say that. And I guess there are similarities. So that, you know, the, the, the ship I discover when I've been on it is a very, very religious place. You know, it oh, turns yes. out it's a, it's a sort of evangelical Christian place. And, you know, I'm absolutely an atheist. But I think it's one of the things that I notice in a number of the books that I've written. For example, uh, you know, the travel book Yoga for people who can't be bothered to do it. You know, I visit there lots of sacred sites, these kind of ruined Buddhist temples and all this kind of stuff. And I think I've had a long-running fascination, or, or I've, I've been drawn to that kind of place, that the, the vacuum that's been uh, created by the uh, by the elimination of sort of re religious belief. You know, what what rushes, what whooshes into that vacuum to fill the to take the place of. You know, what provides the consolation of these lost illusions? Because you're at sea, and that's a you know, with all its, you know, well attested to terrors and, and dangers, do you know, I've become sort of rather less hostile than I might have been at the beginning to the to the prayers that are said at the end of each day on, on the ship. Because I remember as a kid being very moved always, both by, you know, we all like the shipping forecast, but those particular prayers, those, those who go down to the sea in ships, those in peril at, at sea, you know, it's a... Uh, it's yeah it, it it speaks to you at a quite deep primal level that kind of stuff i think i've been speaking with jeff dyer his new book is another great day at sea thank you for joining me jeff oh thank you so much You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>